Episode 26, Rome Falls and the Dark Ages Begin. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 26, Rome Falls and the Dark Ages Begin. I'm going to begin this episode with a famous quote from Edward Gibbon from his massive work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon says this, The decline of Rome was the natural and inevitable effect of immoderate greatness. The story of its ruin is simple and obvious, and instead of inquiring why the Roman Empire was destroyed, we should rather be surprised that it had subsisted so long. It is kind of remarkable that despite all of its corruption and all the turmoil, the Roman Empire lasted as long as it did. There are a lot of factors in its demise, but Gibbon is right when he points out that it's, it's more surprising that it lasted so long than it is that it fell. Like I said in an earlier episode, Rome was strong as long as it had a good emperor, but Rome didn't always produce the kind of people who made good emperors. One of the things that had helped the Roman Republic create good leaders back in the day was the cursus honorum, or the course of honor. You had to work your way up through the lower offices before you could become a consul. And by the time you were a consul, you probably knew what you were doing. And you knew how Rome really worked. You knew the key players. You knew the system. But in the empire, the cursus honorum became less effective and less important. And the imperial bureaucracy didn't really produce the kind of people who would be good emperors. The only good emperors, all of them, came from the legions, where they had been proven as good generals first. So one of the reasons for the decline of Rome was the lack of good emperors who could effectively rule such a large empire. The very largeness of the empire was one of the other problems. First of all, if something happened on the eastern border, for example, it could be several weeks before the emperor heard about it, and then several more weeks before the emperor's reply got back to the eastern border. And by that time, the Parthians had already taken Syria or whatever. That was just one of the reasons that the empire was often split between the eastern and western rulers. It was just more efficient because otherwise it was too big. The other problem with the size of the empire was the long borders. Rome basically controlled all of the land all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. And if you look at a map of the Roman Empire, the inland border, the part that's away from the Mediterranean Sea, the inland border was tens of thousands of miles long. That's the land borders, not counting any ocean borders. That's more than three times the length of all the current United States land borders. And the Romans weren't dealing with Canadians at their borders either. Sorry, just trying to get out of Canada for a bit. Move down here into Minnesota. Won't be long, sorry. A much better parallel would be what's going on down at the southern border, actually, where thousands and thousands of people are trying to get into the United States. But imagine if it wasn't just immigrants trying to cross the border. If it was a literal horde of armed immigrants that they all moved together in mass and just moved into central Texas and then they drove off the existing residents and took their ranches and their houses and their farms and their businesses and just settled there permanently. I mean, that is kind of what's happening. But if they all just stayed together and then they said, hey, Austin is our city now. I mean, what would we do? The hippies in Austin wouldn't stand a chance. 
I don't doubt that the Aggies wouldn't let this happen in College Station, but who wants to live there anyway? This kind of invasion, though, is what happened to the Roman Empire. Several different times, huge groups of barbarian tribes crossed into Roman territory, and they just set up camp. Why did they do this? Well, there was a lot of tribal migration going on in Europe as different groups attacked and displaced other groups. Let's take a look at the Goths, for example. Not the modern, useless Goths with black eyeliner and baggy pants. I'm talking about the barbarian Goths of the 200s and 300s. The Goths were a tribe who had lived in the eastern part of Germany, and they had a reputation for being very fierce warriors. In the 200s, they invaded the eastern part of the Roman Empire several times, but they always just plundered and then they left. But in the late 300s, the Goths were almost overrun by an even fiercer, more warlike tribe, the Huns. I'll come back to the Huns in a minute. But when they attacked the Goths, the Goths retreated, and they eventually moved inside the boundaries of the Roman Empire, partly for protection. The Romans weren't strong enough at this point to keep out the Goths or the Huns, though. So the Goths just stayed in the northern part of Roman territory in Germany. The Roman emperors of the time were having a hard time raising legions of their own, so they often just took the expedient route of paying the Goths to fight for them. At one point, the Roman emperor Theodosius, he's the one that was a devout Christian, remember? He hired 20,000 Goths, led by their chief Alaric, to help him fight the Franks. That's another German tribe. Beat the Franks. Alaric and the Goths helped drive the Franks out, but Alaric lost almost half of his men. The Franks, they migrated and moved, and they eventually settled in France, which is why it's called France, by the way, not Gaul. Frank, France, it's the same root word. Charles Martel and Charlemagne, who we will see in upcoming episodes, were Frankish kings. But back to the Goths, though, right? Alaric, after helping Rome but losing a lot of men, asked the Roman Senate to declare him a Roman general. He's a barbarian, remember, right? The Senate refused, so Alaric gathered some more men, and he marched a horde of barbarians down to Rome, and he surrounded the city. He actually does this three different times. The first two times, the city paid him off with huge piles of gold and silver. But the third time, someone inside the city opened one of the gates for him, and he and the barbarian horde stormed into Rome. Oddly enough, though, they did not burn the city, nor did they do much killing, but they did loot almost everything they could find. This last Gothic sack of Rome took place in A.D. 410. And this really is the end of Rome as the center of the Roman Empire. The Roman Christian writer, Jerome, wrote, The city that had taken over the whole world was itself taken. This same Jerome later translated the Old and New Testaments into Latin, and his translation became known as the Vulgate. Vulgate just means commonly used version because Jerome's translation became the official translation of the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. It was the version that the church used for almost 1,100 years until the Reformation brought a whole slew of new translations. So the Goths, they sacked Rome, but part of the reason that they were there at all was that they had been driven out of their territory by the Huns. On the one hand, there's barbarians, but then there's the Huns. Even the barbarians were scared of the Huns. The Huns, especially during the time that they were ruled by Attila the Hun, he was their king, they terrorized all of Europe. And the funny thing about the Huns 
no one's quite sure where they came from. They sort of just show up on the east edge of Europe in the late 300s, and everyone freaks out. There's some evidence that they were from Central Asia, maybe from around Mongolia, but that comes mostly from just Roman descriptions of them where they're described in ways that sound like descriptions of Mongolians. No one's really sure. But the Huns, like the Mongols that come to Europe later in the Middle Ages, were incredibly fierce horsemen, and they inspired a lot of terror in their enemies. Why were they so terrifying? It's partly because of the way they fought. They fought entirely on horseback, and they would charge up near their enemy, fire off several volleys of arrows while they're still riding, and then retreat out of range. They would do this back and forth several times, and then later charge in with their swords, and then retreat just as quickly. They would basically ride circles around their enemy until the enemy broke formation and retreated or scattered, and then the Huns would ride them down and kill everyone. They also had, apparently, a wild, shrieking battle cry that terrified even Roman soldiers or battle-hardened barbarians. Another reason everyone was afraid of them was that since they were nomadic, they didn't move into an area and just settle there. Instead, they would go through an area, loot and pillage everything, burn the rest, leaving very few survivors, and burning towns to the ground, and then they'd move on and do it again in another area. Under Attila, the Huns moved straight west across Europe, displacing many Germanic tribes like the Goths. The Huns eventually made it all the way into Gaul, with several incursions into other parts of Roman territory. In AD 451, a combined army of Romans and Goths defeated, or at least stopped, they didn't really defeat them, they just stopped them from going forward, they defeated Attila and the Huns in Gaul. The Huns were still together as a battle force, though, but for no apparent reason, they just simply headed back east, back towards Constantinople. They surrounded Constantinople and were preparing to try to attack it, but in 453, Attila died. And after that, the Huns sort of ceased to be a threat. But they had been the catalyst to a lot of barbarians moving all around Europe and into Roman territory. And the Huns are definitely part of the reason that Rome fell, even though they actually never attacked Rome. Going back to the Goths, who did attack Rome, from AD 410 on, after the Gothic sack of Rome, the remaining Roman emperors lived farther north, usually in Ravenna, which was apparently easier to defend. Alaric, the Goth king, never did get his generalship, but the Goths eventually settled in Roman territory in Spain, where they set up their own kingdom. They were later driven out of this kingdom by the Islamic Moors, who were then later defeated themselves by the Franks, but we're getting ahead of ourselves again. This all happens in the Dark Ages, after the fall of Rome, which is coming. A.D. 410, the Gothic sack of Rome, was the end of Rome as the center of the Roman Empire. And for the next 66 years, there was a string of ineffective Western rulers, usually ruling out of Ravenna. During this time, the barbarian tribes basically took whatever Roman territory they wanted. The Franks took over Gaul. Goths settled in North Africa and Spain. The Huns swept across Europe and then left and then some other Gothic tribes settled in northern Italy. The last Roman emperor was named, ironically, Romulus Augustulus. He was removed from power by a Gothic tribal chief named Odoacer in September of AD 476, and no one was put in his place as the emperor of the West. This was the end of the Western Roman Empire. The eastern part of the Roman Empire continued to thrive, 
though it wasn't really the Roman Empire anymore. Its capital, Constantinople, was renamed Byzantium, and the empire became known as the Byzantine Empire. Byzantium as a city was easier to defend because of its walls, which were built by Theodosius again, and so it was never conquered by any barbarian tribes. It was also a major center of trade and shipping, and it remained the center of a cohesive empire for the next thousand years. The Byzantine Empire eventually fell in 1453, when Byzantium was captured by the Ottoman Turks. Then the city was renamed Istanbul, and it became the capital of the Ottoman Empire, which lasted until World War I. Though the Eastern Empire continued, it was less and less Roman, and so the fall of the Western Empire in AD 476 is considered really the end of the Roman Empire. Rome itself, as a city, had been founded in 753 BC. It became a republic in 509 BC, and then the Roman Republic lasted 482 years or so. In 30 BC, Augustus became the first emperor, and the Roman Empire was started. Then the Roman Empire lasts for 506 years until AD 476. So the Roman nation, kingdom, republic, and empire altogether lasts for 1,229 years, which is an amazing length of time for a nation to last as a cohesive nation in the ancient world. But the date of AD 476 is generally regarded as the end of the Western Roman Empire and the beginning of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages are called that because there is really very little written information that survives from this period after the time of the fall of Rome. For the next 1,000 years, there's a sort of cultural and academic stagnation where there isn't all that much new art or architecture or literature or history that's written down. That stuff was actually still going on, but it just not at the scale and grandeur that had characterized Rome. And I should point out again, this really only applies to Western and Central Europe because in the Eastern Roman Empire, which becomes the Byzantine Empire, right? It really does do a lot of impressive art and architecture, history, scholarship. It really does carry those things on. It's just in the central part of Europe that things kind of go dark. Also, the Islamic empires and the Parthians, they're doing art, architecture, mathematics. All those things are going on elsewhere in the world. So it's really only the dark ages. They're really only dark from the point of view of Western Europe. And honestly, it's only really dark because we're comparing it with the glory of Rome. I mean, it's fair to say that everything looks kind of lame when compared to Rome at its peak. It really was the most successful and prolific culture of the ancient world. So, what can we learn from the decline and fall of Rome? How does that apply to us today? I'm basically thinking here of all of us in the Western democracies, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, all the Northern and Central European democracies like Sweden or Norway the United States, and any other country that has tried, like the Romans did, to create a government of, by, and for the people, because that's the idea that the Roman Republic was founded on, in a way. It was a government by the people, of, and for the people when it started, but it really was at first only a government by the patricians, of the patricians, and for the patricians. Eventually, by force, the plebeians made themselves part of that government too. This kind of power sharing worked for a while, but the wealth of Rome and the power of ambitious men with the backing of legions eventually corrupted a system that was built on the idea of people shunning personal power and prestige, just, just like Cincinnatus had done. 
Later on, people stopped following that example and they took advantage of the system for their own glory. This is, of course, one of the key things that we can learn from Rome. Rome worked when the person or people at the top were good men who put the good of the country and the good of Rome ahead of their own personal ambition. This was true both in the Republic and the Empire. It's true today in the governments in the West. There are precious few people in positions of power in any Western government today who are willing to put their own glory or personal success aside and do what's best for the country as a whole. In the words of the famous political commentator Sting, you could say, I've lost my faith in our politicians. They all seem like game show hosts to me. Another thing we can learn from Rome is that it's really difficult to balance the competing needs of the patricians and the plebeians, or the wealthy and the rest of us. Today, in most Western countries, we see an increasing division between the rich and the poor, and the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people control something like 30% of all the world's wealth, and that percentage divide is increasing. just recently read a Bloomberg article that said the top 1% of people, wealthy people in the United States hold more wealth than the entire middle class. That's as of mid-2021. There's a real tension here, and it is that the really wealthy, in some way, do actually have the most vested interest in the success and prosperity of their nation because they're so deeply invested in it, right? But I think it's also true that the middle and lower classes should be able to live with the same rights as the wealthy. I also think it's fair to say that in the history of the West, more human suffering has come from the rich exploiting the poor than it has come from wars of nations against other nations or any kind of natural causes. And of course, in those wars, right, it's always the young men of the poor and the middle class that are doing the fighting and the dying, not the young men of the wealthy elite classes. So we've got this tension about the wealthy and the poor and how we provide rights for everyone in those classes. One of the things that balances all of this out is the rule of law, another Roman idea, and the idea that no one, no matter how wealthy, is above the law. But of course, if you are really, really, really wealthy, you can buy off the judge or the district attorney or the police officer. So again, it comes back to having good people in these positions who value things like truth, honesty, integrity, and honor as being more important than personal gain or personal pleasure. And this goes back to one more thing we can learn from Rome. For most of its early history, Rome had a very cohesive culture and a value structure that valued the glory of Rome far above personal glory or success. When it was an important cultural value to be seen as not ambitious, but instead to be seen as someone who was serving Rome, Rome was much stronger. But as more and more people were assimilated into Rome and less and less people held onto Roman values, the cohesiveness of the culture was dramatically weakened. I think this is true of the United States and many of the other Western democracies today. They were started with a lot of shared values that the founding mothers and fathers and the early settlers of these places, they all shared, but they do not share today. Many of them had similar values like faith, integrity, personal responsibility, and hard work that have now been replaced in many cases by hedonism, entitlement, and a competition to claim to see who can be seen as the ones who are most victimized by the system. And on top of that, the wealthiest people seem to no longer care about the good of the whole nation, but only about their own enrichment. 
We've lost a lot of the cultural glue that held this country and the other countries together just a few generations ago. I think this is true of the United States and most of the democracies of the West. The one last thing I think we can learn from Rome, and that is the, the idea that humans have intrinsic rights. From the point of view of how you do your government, you can look at human rights in two different ways. One is to say that the government grants certain rights to the individuals. In other words, rights are given out to the individual by the government or by the king, and then the government or the king can take those rights away too. The other way to see it is to see that all people have inherent rights, and the government exists to protect the rights of all of those individuals. In fact, the ideal government is a government of those individuals who are looking to protect their own inherent rights and protect the rights of all the other individuals, like the right to liberty. Liberty, just to define it, right? It's the freedom to do what you want, go where you want, think what you want, say what you want, work in the way that you want to, and basically live the way that you choose to live. And it also contains the concept that this freedom can only be taken away from you by the due process of law. For example, your freedom to go where you want can be taken away and you can be sent to jail if and only if the due process of law is followed and by the law you are justly convicted of, say, murder or robbery and then assigned to the appropriate length of time in jail. You can't just be picked up off the street by the powers that be and thrown in jail for nothing. That's not due process. If due process is followed, then you cannot have your inherent right of freedom, of liberty to go where you want, taken away. You have the inherent right to go where you want, to mostly do what you want to do, as long as it doesn't harm someone else and infringe on their rights. These are inherent rights. Humans all have them. They aren't given to us by the government. The Roman Republic was created to protect the inherent rights of the patricians, at least, and eventually this incumbents the plebeians as well. Some of these rights were still protected under the empire, but under the empire, a lot of individual rights were eroded, and the power of the imperial state was really supreme. The rule of law was basically ignored by many of the emperors. After the Roman Republic, the form of government in general shifts to the imperial model, in which any human rights were merely granted by the government or the emperor or the king, and those could be taken away at any time from any person by imperial decree. It took a long time after Rome for the people to regroup and create a government again that was of, by, and for the people. But even those Western governments that were founded on those principles now seem to have lost the sense of being by the people, of the people, and for the people. Instead, the current government systems all seem to be of the elite, by the elite, and for the elite. Maybe we're getting back to the problem of patricians versus plebeians again. So this begs this last question. Do we stand on the brink today of a new dark age? An age where the basic rights of individuals are no longer going to be protected by their own governments? The world that was described by George Orwell in 1984, where the government exists to suppress and control the people rather than protect their liberties, seems to be more and more the direction that we are headed. In 1983, when I was in high school, I read 1984, and it seemed far-fetched, and I thought back those, in those days, I thought, oh, that could never happen. But now, it seems like it's not that far-fetched, and it seems like this might actually be the direction that we're heading. Orwell was only off by 40 or 50 years, I guess. 
Fahrenheit 451 also deserves some mention in this discussion as well as Brave New World. All of those books describe something that seems to be looming on the horizon that might also deserve the title of the Dark Ages. Well, next episode, we will begin looking at the Dark Ages, the first one, not the upcoming one. And I promise I won't bog down as much in the Dark Ages as I did on Rome, at least for a while. The Dark Ages and all of the Middle Ages are actually super interesting as those things lead into the Renaissance and the Reformation, which leads into the Age of Exploration, which eventually leads to the next time that the people got together and they wrote out a declaration of their inherent rights, the truths which they held to be self-evident.